Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Barbara Gago, CEO and founder of Pando, an employee career progression platform that's raised $7 million in funding. Barbara, thanks for chatting with me today. Of course. Happy to be here. So to kick things off, could we just start the quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. I would say that I've been a serial early stage operator throughout my career. I've been in pretty much B2B tech the whole time joining companies pre-series A and working to build the initial foundation for scaling up and usually sticking around until maybe series C and, you know, two, three, four hundred employees. I've been working at the intersection of, I would say, people and sort of future of work, definitely focused on disruptive technologies and category creating products. So, Early in my career, I worked on marketing automation as that was becoming a category. I did some work in enterprise social networking for those that remember tools like Yammer and then recruiting people, tech, people analytics, and most recently in the collaboration space. Who created the marketing automation category? I feel like that's heavily disputed. I've had a few founders on who claim that they created it. Who do you think created the marketing automation? I think it was a community effort. (laughs) Back then, Eloqua and Marketo were probably the biggest leaders, Eloqua being on the enterprise side and Marketo being more SMB and a lot more savvy, I would say, on the marketing front. And then there were tools like Pardot that got acquired by Salesforce and some other like small ones. So I would say It was a joint effort because we were all trying to educate the market on this new thing. The winners were definitely, or the loudest, would probably be Eloqua and Marketo. Nice. We just had Mark Organ on a different podcast, the founder of Eloqua, and Uh, he was talking through his journey there. And then we had (laughs) someone else on who said, you know, they also created it. So I was curious what your inside view there is. But that's, uh, that's super interesting. And then just to, you know, brag or name drop a little bit for you, just because I think the audience is going to be you know, aware of these companies. You're head of marketing at CultureAmp, VP of marketing at Greenhouse, and then most recently, uh, CMO at Miro. Is that correct? That is correct. What was it like making that shift when you went from you know, a marketing leadership role to founding your own company? What was like the biggest challenge that you faced when you made that jump? I feel like I was pretty prepared, to be honest. Not that there wasn't challenges, so I'll get to that. (laughs) But I think as a CMO, there's a lot of pressure to understand so much of the business if you're focused on driving revenue, of course. And so like really understanding the buyers. And because I also worked for companies like Greenhouse and CultureAmp, I learned so much about the people space and how to recruit. And I think recruiting is definitely one of my superpowers and something that I brought into Miro, for example. And so I think having that exposure to best-in-class tools and processes like that have given me a lot of experience. And then really working, rolling my sleeves up with founders. I mean, I joined Greenhouse when we were, I think I was the 13th hire. Miro was pre-Series A. There were more employees at that time. But I've been really 
operating at kind of the ground zero for so long that I think a lot of that savvy of what we should do and what we should focus on and how to think about the company and marketing and branding early on also was helpful. I think the biggest challenge, like I'm a solo founder, so that comes with a whole host of challenges, I would say. And I think that my biggest hurdle is really being comfortable leading and hiring for roles that even if I was close with our VP of engineering or more so technical because my husband's an engineer and we talk about all these kinds of things, like hiring roles and building parts of the business that I I didn't directly oversee before has definitely been probably the biggest areas of expansion. So having like the business side pretty comfortably under control, but then yeah, I've rebuilt my engineering team a few times, actually. So I think that's been one of the biggest challenges for myself. Why do you think it is that there's not more CMOs that go on to launch companies? And maybe I could be wrong there, but you know, just in the podcast, we've interviewed, I think, something like 400 founders now. And it's not very common that you have a, a CMO go and start a company. It's very common to have someone in cybersecurity who's a practitioner, they go start a company or an engineer, they experience a problem and they start a company. But it seems like there's not a lot of CMOs. Is that just my limited view of speaking with founders or do you think that's accurate? I think it's pretty accurate. I would say that I have always wanted to be a founder. It's been my dream. I feel like I'm in my dream job. Like it's so hard and I love it. I've always been very entrepreneurial. I think for me, I didn't start a company sooner because I really wanted to learn as much as possible. And I think like Miro was really a great opportunity for me to get a better sense of like the PLG and sales motion kind of combined. And that was really exciting because before it had mostly been sales driven or marketing driven. And so that was a great added perspective. I don't know. It's hard because marketing is a really wide type of function where you can be more on the brand side or more on the demand gen side or now more on the product led growth side. And there's so many dimensions and so many avenues to what marketing is and can be that I think that most CMOs kind of fit into one of those categories And I don't know that they all want to be founders. I think many of them have worked for CEOs and founders, and and it's been really challenging to, you know, make arguments or cases for how you want to invest money or what you're going to do and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. All I can say is that I've always wanted to have that job. (laughs) So I've been just working my way to it. And I think I do feel like marketers would be set up to be very strong CEOs, however, because the good ones at least are deep in customer engagements, customer pain points, understanding, spending time with customers, understanding how to position and sell the product, hopefully holding themselves accountable to revenue generation directly, which is something that I have always had tied to my personal compensation. And then on top of it, there's a lot of cross-functional collaboration, just given the type of work that marketing is. So I feel like they would be prime for that role. I don't know why exactly they're not. (laughs) And from those three buckets, or like the two buckets that I hear people talk a lot about would be product marketing and demand gen. And like they said, you know, CMOs will typically fall into like those categories. And it sounds like you have a third category there. 
what type of CMO you know, would you hire or did you hire? Like which of those buckets? I think it really depends on what your business model is. I am a little bit of a unique CMO or was because I actually had a degree in fashion. So I have this whole like brand kind of design side, but then I'm very left brain in terms of systems thinker and a little bit technical. So I was really good at demand generation, but also kind of creating community and connection with customers. And I think that it's product marketing, demand gen, and maybe PLG kind of fits into that more revenue-based bucket. And then there's also like the brand CMO, the one that's like, I would say, big consumer, maybe if you think about like a beauty brand or something like that. I think it really depends on what kind of business you have. And it does really matter that you get the right one. <laughs> I think if you don't have experience with marketing and you don't know if you have product market fit, product marketing is a great first step because you need somebody who can look at the product and translate it into language that makes sense for buyers. If you already have that and it's a matter of scaling, then you know you have demand gen or I would say demand gen also kind of intersects with building categories in a way because it's a lot of educating of the market, a little bit of product marketing as well, of course. So I think it really depends on what your business model is and also what stage of growth you're at. And to switch gears, let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So can you just give us the high level overview of what the product does? Sure. So Pando is, as you mentioned, a career progression platform. And basically what we're introducing is this concept of just-in-time promotion. I think that performance reviews, similarly to how we used to do development, is a very much a waterfall process that for some employees and some companies only happens once a year. And that's a really bad process if you want people to develop and grow and you want to have an impact on their development as they go. And so we're really focused on killing the paradigm of performance reviews and making employee performance agile and predictable to the point of really having a real-time sort of understanding of where folks are at using a lot of the same tools that you would see in a performance system. So feedback and goals and evaluating your employees or evaluating managers, but doing that in a much more structured and iterative way. Just to visualize what it looks like, could you maybe talk through the Oyster case study that you have? And the reason I'd love to chat through that one is we had Tony Jamis on our other podcast, Unicorn Builders. We just did a newsletter about that interview. So our listeners are going to be very familiar with Oyster. So could we maybe talk through that? Yeah. So I think Oyster, I feel like Pando is actually like Oyster's kid sister. I always say this because they're, yeah, they're like our big brother, our big sister. <laughs> um, we're both in the people space. And I think philosophically, there's a lot of alignment. So Oyster, I think the thing that I love about Oyster is that they're very philosophically aligned with how you think about employee performance. And Mark, who is their chief workplace officer, and he also was the head of people at Envision. So he's he's very well-versed in leading and building distributed workforces. He actually gave a few talks within Oyster as they were rolling Pando out to also help educate their whole employee base around how performance kind of typically happens and what they're trying to do. And I think that he gives this analogy of like a coach. And I guess my husband is playing a lot of tennis and I 
have got into tennis too now. So I'll use tennis as the example. But the idea is like, if you're a professional athlete, you're getting coached and you're getting critiqued and you're getting feedback after every match that you play, probably after your training sessions even. And you're really kind of looking at what you need to do to improve and and reflecting and observing, but you're doing that on a regular and continuous basis. You're not waiting till the end of the season to get and give all of your feedback. And so they're like distributed, of course, across, I don't know, 80 countries or something like that. And I think the other really important thing is that because they're remote and distributed, Pando creates a structure and transparency that gives everybody clarity no matter where they are. So obviously, a lot of their employees and team members have never met each other. You might have never met your manager. Of course, you work with them. But Pando really helps create a clarity and structure so that individuals understand what's expected of them, what they need to focus on to get to the next level. It provides structure for managers to be able to drill into specific competencies. So I think that's the biggest differentiator. So we're looking at performance in the context of specific skills. So if you're a tennis player, it might be like your forehand or your backhand or your debt play or whatever it is. And in Pando, if you're an engineer, it might be frameworks and foundations or code delivery or how you're working cross-functionally. And then those competencies are the the way then that you evaluate performance. So you're ranking specific skills instead of the person generally. And you're doing that on a skill-by-skill basis, which can be done anytime. And also in a contextual way, which is you're a level four engineer. I'm going to give you feedback on frameworks and foundations that is defined by every level. So you're also giving fair sort of equitable feedback. So they really care about making sure the system is fair. They care about making the process ongoing and iterative. It's really part of, you know, building a human-centered type of business and company. And I think that, yeah, they're a great example of not doing a performance review. So they have kind of like an in-the-middle model where they do every six months. It's more like a calibration and you need to have like been assessed across your dimensions over the last six months at some point, and then you can like level up. So they still do a little bit of a a cadence, but it's not like a review in the traditional sense. And their goal, of course, is to get fully continuous. So we're working with them on that. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, I'd love to dive a bit deeper into the category creation part of the interview. So, from day one, did you think or did you know that this was a category creation play? I say yes, because when I joined Greenhouse, we were in ATS, and that's the category that all of these ATS tools fall into. But at the time, and I don't know if anybody remembers this company, but there was a company called Jobvite. And the whole category of products, like all of the products before Greenhouse, really were like you just submit 
applications and then recruiting wasn't even that strategic. They just like go through applications and then they go to the hiring manager and they'll just like give you a stack of resumes. Like that was recruiting and that was the process. And Greenhouse was introducing a methodology behind the process to make recruiting more of a cultural thing, to make the organization good at recruiting, to give it structure, to make it more equitable, to have transparency. And so because of that, we were like, okay, well, we're not an ATS because ATSs suck and they don't add that much value. So we can't call ourselves an ATS. So I was trying to create a new category. At one point, it was like recruiting optimization. And ultimately, we kind of rubber banded back into ATS because at the end of the day, companies already had a budget for an ATS. So creating a new category when they already had a budget for an existing category didn't really make sense because then where's the budget for that new category? And so what we ended up doing was, okay, change of strategy. Now our goal is to make this category way more valuable. And so the work from a marketing perspective was not around building and making a new category. It was like, how do we make recruiting a really high-impact, high-value organization within the company. And that's where we spent all of our time and resources to train and educate the market. And people who ended up getting promoted and getting better jobs from the work that they did using that platform. And I think that Pando is similar to that, which is every company, because of like even compliance, has budget, has some need for sure, to do quote unquote performance reviews. Like, this is definitely something that companies have to do. And to be honest, the category is, I would say, still a little bit flexible. Like, career progression is a new paradigm of how we're thinking about it. And it is not performance reviews. And so that's why it does make more sense to think about it in this way. And so a lot of the marketing and the thought leadership and really the methodologies that we go out to the market with to help them understand how all this works is anchored in that. At the same time, the market has changed, obviously. Last year and the year before, everything is rallying, everybody's hiring, everybody's spending ungodly amounts of money to recruit people. And it was an employee market. And career progression, I would say, is like the luxury thing. Like everybody wanted career progression. They wanted just-in-time promotion. Like this was the thing that made total sense because all the employees were demanding it. And now that the market has changed, we're still advocating for this and still kind of building the foundation and laying the foundation for that. But also now like positioning slightly more in the traditional performance review space, but maybe now it's like performance that doesn't suck or, you know, we obviously can do performance reviews way faster. So I think that's the interesting thing about category creation and also positioning and how you sort of have to adapt to what's happening out in the world. How do you think about the difference between category design and positioning? In LinkedIn, I see a lot of people battling and, and fighting about those two. Like, is, is category creation just like the same thing as positioning? Or what is that difference? Or how do you think about that difference? I think that positioning is a constant evolution. I think that a category 
is something that ends up in G2 Crowd or software advice or the obvious thing on the spreadsheet of budgets of every company. Like this is a category that everybody knows they need, et cetera. So like performance reviews sort of fit into that bucket or ATS or CRM, things like that. So I don't think that categories are as flexible. Like once they're created, they have a decent amount of longevity and sort of stance because, you know, now you have so many other companies that are in that category. Sometimes, you know, if you create the category and another company can take it over and it's okay because then it's like a real thing. I think that positioning is and should be something that's a lot more fluid because it's about the changing dynamics of the market, of the buyer, as the company evolves, as the product evolves, as it solves new solutions. These are all all ways that it will be positioned. And I think it's really about that's like connecting the dots between what your go-to-market strategy is, who you're targeting, you know, how you're how you're going after and winning those customers. It sounds like you had to change the positioning there a little bit to focus on that more established line item and category. Long term, though, do you envision that career progression would be that line item that would replace performance reviews or what's like that high level thinking and like what's that high level objective for five years from today? I think, yes, 100 percent. I think that that paradigm will definitely change. Like performance reviews will completely dissolve. I mean, the more remote teams get, the more like levels and comp and all of these things become more transparent. It's almost like this stuff becomes a little bit more transactional. And so that career progression platform in my mind is something that, you know, you go into an organization You work there for however long you work there, you develop your skills, you level up, and then you take your profile and your evidence and all of your things to the next company and you continue to use and build on that. So like, I really want to build kind of the ecosystem where levels are sort of a bit more standardized and calibrated so you can go from company to company with that kind of context, but also have more validation around the work that you've done and the skills that you've built and what that looks like. What are the signals a founder should look for to know if it's a category creation play or if they should you know, make their way into an existing category and, and take that challenger position? I mean, I think there's some signals like, I mean, I guess it depends on what kind of product it is. I can speak more towards B2B because that's where the bulk of my experience has been in. So, you know, larger companies will go through RFPs to evaluate technology solutions and they'll go and they'll, you know, collect, I don't know, five or six different organizations and they'll look at all of them. If you're not getting in those and you're not getting requests for those, that's one signal. Like people don't know you exist or don't think that your product fits into that category. I think if sales cycles are taking a long time or if you're having a hard time figuring out who the buyer is or they're having a hard time figuring out who the buyer is or who would be able to influence or make a decision on that that purchase. I think those are yeah some of the things, I guess. So we recently had Godard on, the, the CEO of G2, and he was talking about his number one piece of advice for founders who want to create a category is to go join forces with your competitors and then approach the analyst firms and say, hey, you know, we're all together here in this category. We want to see it created. Is that something that you've seen work in at Pando or any of those other roles that you've been at where you kind of work together and collaborate with competitors? 
We did not work together with our competitors at Miro, but we did get visual collaboration. This was like a fight with the analysts, yes, <laughs> to get visual collaboration, a new category. And it does require other competitors. And I think, you know, we talked about that a few minutes ago, just in terms of like having competition in the space is a signal that it is a category. And the more there are new companies that are cropping up saying that they're doing the same thing is better for you, of course. It's easy for him to say that. I don't know what companies would rally with their competitors to go talk to G2 Crowd or whatnot, but we definitely did spend a lot of time with them making the case as to why this is a category and eventually it became one. But no, we definitely didn't partner with our with our competitors. But yeah. maybe we should have. <laughs> <laughs> what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to a founder who's looking to create a category? I think like don't get too stuck on it if it doesn't work. Like you have to be able to let it go if it's not working. And so if people aren't picking it up, if it's not getting traction, if there aren't competitors, if other people aren't referring to that as a category or mentioning it, like at Greenhouse, when we tried recruiting optimization and we did events and we did content, and I think a couple of people might have started using it, but it really wasn't sticking, then we just let it go. Like you don't want to spend more time than you need trying to like put a square in a round hole. Final question. Let's zoom out three to five years from today. What's that vision for Panda? What does it look like? I think my goal is really to create a ecosystem within the organization where people are kind of leveling up at their own pace. And it's within a framework that, you know, is trusted and fair and equitable, but really optimizing what we talk about as employee lifetime value. So looking at not being in humans, it's actually like very human centered in terms of the design, but like really being able to optimize the potential of individuals. So this gets into having more career coaching within the context of the organization that probably will be through some kind of AI I think the broader community of like standardizing levels and having portable profiles where the work that you're doing in one place is sort of meaningful and usable at other places, really getting into sort of predicting what's going to happen in your workforce. So a lot of companies are, you know, struggling with succession planning and and where they have gaps in talent or skills and really being able to sort of forecast what's going to happen in the future with the current employees you have and and the pace of growth and the velocity of growth and where they're going to end up in, you know, six months or 12 months. I love the vision. All right. I know we're over on time here, so we can wrap. Before we do, if any founders listening in want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? LinkedIn is like the only social media I'm on and probably too much. And I'm easy to find there, just Barbara Gago. And then if you want to check out Pando, that's just pando.com. Those are the two best places. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat about what you're building and share some of your valuable lessons and everything that you've learned throughout your career. This has been awesome. I know it's going to be a hit with our audience and really appreciate you making the time. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. <laughs>
This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 